Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, is Joe Biden what the Democratic Party needs right now? Or should he step aside? I'm Joe Biden. And yes, I am out of step with where a lot of leaders in the Democratic Party are going. Then, America's sexual recession. What is causing it? Young men need to step up. And finally, a recommendation. He was Stephen King, baby. Joe Biden did not have a good week. Former Vice President Joe Biden is now accused of inappropriate touching which then led to a big discussion about whether Biden was a relic from another era. Away from the media scrum, though, Biden still looks like the strongest Democrat in the 2020 field. Huge numbers of voters say they like him, especially Democrats. He still hasn't announced whether he's running, but he seems likely to do so in coming weeks. In previous episodes on this show, we focused on other candidates, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Today, we are going to talk about Biden. Michelle, you should go first. You were already negative about him before last week's events. So tell us why you're so down on Joe Biden. I mean, I I don't think it's fair to say that I'm down on Joe Biden. I mean, I'm down on him as a candidate, not as a person, right? Like, I have a lot of residual affection for Joe Biden. Um, You know, I think unlike a lot of other feminist writers I know, you know, he was a great vice president to Obama. He pushed that administration in good directions. He's, you know, sort of a charming figure. I think that there are a lot of reasons why I hope that he doesn't run for president. And, you know, this sort of like handsy thing that is now becoming an issue in some ways is the least of it. Although I think it's a sort of symbol of just that he's out of step with the mores of the progressive movement. So, This thing that's going on now with Lucy Flores and Amy Lapos is playing out in a way that I think is pretty painful because I feel like the two sides are really misunderstanding each other. You know, on the one hand, you have Joe Biden's defenders who see this as an example of, you know, absurd Me Too overkill. And are we really trying to outlaw, you know, platonic gestures of affection And, you know, to them, this looks like a coordinated hit and the sort of weaponization of this movement. And then on the other side, you have people who are trying to say, you know, no, nobody's saying that Joe Biden, you know, sniffing your hair or nuzzling your hair or kissing the back of your head or, you know, rubbing your nose against his. Nobody's saying that's sexual assault. Nobody's even saying that's sexual harassment. They're just saying that it's like makes them really uncomfortable and feels like an invasion of their personal space in a way that... Women are now increasingly articulating how that makes them uncomfortable and self-conscious and they kind of don't want to put up with it anymore. And so to me, the problem is that we're kind of fighting about whether Joe Biden is a good candidate on this issue of like how we feel about these sort of ambiguous accusations by Lucy Flores, when the problem is really that his entire record is just not right for this moment. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I, I'm sort of, I wrote a column this week that sort of, I think, is kind of a compliment to the argument Michelle's making. And I'm curious what you guys think of the argument that basically, if Biden wanted to run for the nomination and win, and in order to win, he would need to give people a real reason to vote for him in a crowded, divided field where there are lots of likable candidates. I think you could make a case that he would need to sort of lean in to the very problem Michelle is identifying, right? And basically say, hi, yeah, I, I'm Joe Biden. And yes, I am out of step with where a lot of activists and leaders in the Democratic Party are going. I do have a record that's a little more moderate or centrist in ways that liberals on the left don't like. And I'm going to own it. And I'm going to try and basically rally the part of the Democratic Party. And there is still a part of the Democratic Party that isn't you know, isn't all the way to where Bernie Sanders is on economics, isn't all the way to where a lot of the party is on race and sexual harassment and these kind of things. And I think if Biden did that, he would be able to assemble not a majority coalition, but this kind of plurality coalition. He would be doing in a way a version of what Trump did in the Republican primary, where you say, look, I'm going to get 30 percent. Um, so here's what the part of the reason I think he couldn't do that, um, you know, not that he shouldn't do that, but that he couldn't do that is because so many parts of that record are really things that can't be defended on their merits. Right. He's not he can't go out there and defend his vote for the Iraq war. He can't go out there and defend his vote for Glass-Steagall, which, you know, rolled back some regulations on banking in a way that a lot of people believe um, set the table for the financial crisis in 2008 and that Biden has called one of his greatest ever regrets. Um, he can't sort of go back and defend his treatment of Anita Hill when he himself has said that it was really unfair how she was treated. No, he can't do that. But he could defend some elements of his record on, let's say, race and crime and abortion. And he could basically say, I'm going to be the candidate who says it's okay to be a Democrat who voted for the Partial Birth Abortion Act. I'm going to say it's okay to be a Democrat who doesn't agree with the idea of reparations. I'm going to be a Democrat who defends Bill Clinton's record, right? He could defend Bill Clinton's record on crime, which a lot of liberals really find appalling now, but not all Democrats do. I mean, I, I think there's a story he could tell. Even Bill Clinton, though, has renounced the crime bill, right? I mean, even Bill Clinton isn't defending that record anymore. That's true. No, this this is why I don't think I don't think Biden will do this. I I, I expect that if he runs, he will run as a figure who sort of doesn't try to defend his record at all, and ba or basically just sort of reduces his record to his years as Obama's vice president, and says, "I get it. I'm on board with the new progressive consensus, but I'm a kind of bridge to the future. This you know this is why they're talking about a one-term pledge and so on. And I think that kind of run will be a total disaster." And he will collapse Jeb Bush style because it doesn't give anyone a reason to actively support him. But I think the kind of run I'm imagining has more potential to get him the nomination, but at the cost of making him this incredibly divisive figure who's hated by a big portion of the party. And I'm curious what David, as our, as our moderate, thinks about that. I guess I think that politics are a little less literal than we journalists often treat it as. I, I don't think most voters are out there toting up Joe Biden's history of policy positions. I think there are a huge number of voters who are medium to low information voters and who feel positively about Joe Biden. And I'm not super excited about his candidacy, 
but I really want him to run. Because I think in 2016, the Democratic Party got a lesson in the problem of essentially trying to decide the primary before it had even begun. And I do think there is a larger group of Democrats. Ross, you identified them as basically suburban moderates and culturally moderate African-Americans and Latinos and others who are not exactly where a lot of the energy on the progressive left is right now. And I think it would be healthy for the party to find out, well, exactly how many voters like that are there. And the way I read the polling, Joe Biden is the most popular Democrat coming into the race. And so I guess, Michelle, my question for you is, I get why you hope he's not the nominee. But to me, that's a little bit different from hoping he doesn't run. Wouldn't it be better if he ran and either won and showed that this really is where people are or lost and and people like you who don't like him would be able to say, see, Joe Biden's not the answer. Well, again, I would go back to the fact that I do like him. And honestly, part of it is that I don't really want to see Joe Biden go out there and be humiliated. Right. I don't really want to see other candidates disassemble his record and sort of, you know, right now he goes out as a you know popular vice president, elder statesman. I understand why he wants to risk all that, but I don't think he should. And the reason I don't want him to run is just I don't really feel like it would be useful or healthy. I also didn't want Bernie Sanders to run. You know, I just feel like it's not useful or healthy to go back and relitigate a lot of this stuff. I don't want to relitigate the 2016 election, and I certainly don't want to relitigate the 90s or the Iraq war. I just think that the debate could be much more forward looking and If there are moderate voters out there who just want some sort of nice, safe seeming white guy, the Democrats Party, the Democratic Party has some of those. You know, it just it doesn't have to be someone who's 76 and has a bunch of positions that he now wants to disavow. So to me, the candidates who had the best possibility of appealing to moderate voters Many of them are not running or some of them are really struggling. So Deval Patrick, who's African-American and the former governor of Massachusetts, not running. Mitch Landrieu, white, New Orleans mayor, not running. Sherrod Brown, whom we've talked about before, Ohio senator, not running. Amy Klobuchar is running but is struggling. I guess, Michelle, who do you see? I realize you don't think this is how the Democrats should make the decision. But who besides Biden do you see as the figure in the race who has a natural appeal to those kind of swing voters. Well, it looks like our boss's brother's going to get in, right? And I think that that, <laughs> right? Like Michael Bennett looks like he's going to get in. You know, um, I think potentially Mayor Pete, even though, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you don't need like a 37-year-old candidate who is the mayor of a minor city in Indiana. But I think that he probably really appeals to some of that constituency. And and Kamala Harris, frankly, whose major issue has been improving teacher pay, which I would imagine is a really popular issue with suburban parents and is the rare issue that unites both the teachers unions and the charter school reform neoliberal sector of the Democratic Party. But in a way, I think the way Kamala Harris has run shows why it would be good if Biden runs. So stick with me for just one second here, which is I agree Kamala Harris could run as sort of a moderate, right? She could talk about her record as a prosecutor. She could talk about all the things you were just talking about. That's not how she's running. 
She's running by talking about uh, the joy that marijuana brings. She's running very much by trying to appeal to this progressive energy. And it seems to me that it would be healthier for the Democratic Party to have top-tier candidates who both are trying to appeal to the progressive energy and are trying to appeal toward this large part of the Democratic primary electorate who are less political and more moderate. And my concern is that Biden is basically the the giant among those potential candidates. And if he doesn't run, the Democrats might be doing themselves a disservice. Well, here's I think I mean, I think it's pretty clear right now that if Biden doesn't run the competition for the sort of moderate white guy lane is going to come down to probably Beto and Buttigieg, if I'm pronouncing Mayor Pete's last name right. And I think you've got, you know, Beto O'Rourke is going to be, he's out there doing sort of vague uplift (laughs) with (laughs) very little policy. And Buttigieg is a sort of heartland technocrat, the sort of Mitch Daniels of the Democratic Party. And those are both brands that are sort of more centrist in some general way than the brands that Harris and certainly Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have. And I think that does make, in a sense, David's case for him in a way, because, you know, whatever you think about Joe Biden, he probably has more business being president of the United States than Beto and Buttigieg. Um, I just don't think he's going to want the kind of primary where he really runs as a moderate. And in the end, I think if he if he can't do that, then those voters are going to defect to the excitement of Mayor Pete or the excitement of Beto or maybe the Minnesota fury of Amy Klobuchar, and he's going to lose anyway. I worry about the poison of this debate about Biden that sort of borrows some of the moral force of Me Too to talk about something that's actually quite different than Me Too, you know, which is his chronic handsiness and kind of outsized physical affection. I mean, the debate itself just seems it makes me really kind of sad for everybody involved. And I just don't see what good can come of it. There's there's so much bad faith and so much misunderstanding and so much personal embarrassment and personal destruction. I just really worry about where it's going. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Biden can't get through that issue without sort of making his own handsiness a kind of cause celebre for part of the party, right? The part of the party that thinks it's fine. He he needs that party to that part of the party to sort of mobilize around him in a way that would be a kind of me too has gone too far coalition. And there too, that's divisive. But he doesn't want to be that guy. I mean in part, look, his one of his signature issues with Obama was campus sexual assault. He doesn't want to be out there as the person being like, I'll nuzzle whoever I want. You no, know? and that and that is, I think, the, the be- in certain ways, the best counter argument <laughs> is that Biden's own choices under Obama make it clear that he doesn't want to be, you know, the fighting moderate that he was for much of his career, that he wants to be seen as a progressive leader, even if his a record doesn't doesn't back it up historically. And to the extent that's true, then, you know, you're not going to get a guy to run a campaign he doesn't just doesn't want to run. 
I still think he's a stronger candidate than a lot of this discussion suggests when you look at the polling and you look at his numbers. And I'm just talking now about his numbers among Democrats. Um, uh, but he, he does have some big weaknesses, starting with his age. So what do you each think about a couple of the specific ideas about Biden? I think the idea that he would announce he would serve only one term is a terrible idea. I think it just focuses attention on his weaknesses. Do either of you like it more than I do? No, I mean, because it's sort of acknowledging that he's too old, right? And I don't think the candidate should be in his 70s. You know, my biggest reservation about Elizabeth Warren, who I love, is that she's in her 60s. I mean, what? look at all of the successful Democratic presidents of not just our generation, but, you know, well before we were born, right? They are all insurgent young men. The the one exception would be LBJ, but even he was 56, even though he looked like he was 70. Democrats have always, in the recent and not so recent past, done better as the party of sort of like youth and energy and change. Ross, if, if I'm right to assume that you also don't like the one-term idea, what do you think about the idea of him announcing a vice presidential pick, specifically Stacey Abrams, the young, dynamic Georgian who came close to winning the governor's race out of the gate? What do you think of that idea? I mean, I think it's also a bad idea. And Abrams has semi-taken herself out of consideration for that, right? Which is understandable because if you're Stacey Abrams, why do you want to lash yourself to a campaign that might collapse upon its first contact with political reality? I also think in terms of his sort of out of touchness, you know, this thing of kind of floating Stacey Abrams without actually talking to Stacey Abrams beforehand really infuriated a lot of people. And I feel like if you sort of understand the dynamics of politicians of this generation, you would have understood that that would infuriate her and her allies. And it's making it's making subtext text instead of sort of implying that you, Joe Biden, will be a bridge to a different democratic future. You're showing up and saying, here, here's my young African-American running mate who will succeed me very soon so you can vote for me. It just I just feel like it invites the kind of ridicule and the sense of sort of incipient weakness that did in Jeb Bush in a different context, but a similar one in certain ways just a few years ago. I think if Biden is running, he needs to run as a front runner. He needs to go in and say, I've got the poll numbers. I'm going to have the money. Voters like me. I'm here. You know, I'm playing to win. And all of these moves don't seem like they're made from that position at all. Okay. We will leave it there. We're going to keep going through the candidates. At this rate, it sounds like Mayor Pete may be the next one we talk about. Um, but we are also happy to hear your suggestions. If there's a candidate you want to hear us talk about, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. And we will be right back. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine to flooding in Pakistan to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish.
I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without hints, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Americans are having less sex, and it's not just because society is aging. Well, you know, what's really surprising in the data is that we're seeing that sex is actually going down among adults in general and among young adults in particular. Almost a quarter of people in their 20s say they had no sex last year. As for teenagers, here's what The Atlantic magazine has reported. In the space of a generation, sex has gone from something that most high school students have experienced to something most haven't. Why is this happening? Is it good, bad, or both? Ross, help us understand what's going on here. So there's this old short story called The Monkey's Paw, which is basically about a monkey's paw, as the title suggests, that grants you wishes. But once you're granted the wish, it ends up, of course, coming at some enormous cost that makes you wish you'd never made the wish in the first place. And I think for a lot of social conservatives, that's sort of what has happened with youth sex over the last 20 20 years or so, and especially over the last 10 or 15, right? Because if you went back to the 1980s and 1990s and you asked cultural conservatives what had gone wrong in America, they would say, well, you know, we we have a crisis of promiscuity and people are having sex before marriage too much with too many partners. They're having too many children out of wedlock. Families are breaking down. Marriage is breaking down. And promiscuity is at the heart of it. And so you can imagine the social conservative of 1982 or 1995 rubbing the monkey's paw and wishing for, you know, less promiscuity and getting it. But the way we've gotten it has not been this kind of remoralization of sexual life that conservatives imagined. It's just been this sort of straightforward decline of relationships and marriage. So the simplest reason why sex is declining among younger people, and this doesn't obviously encompass teen sex, but it's just the decline of marriage or people postponing marriage at least. So social conservatives have gotten their less sexually active before marriage society in a sense, but they've gotten it sort of at the expense of the institution and the sort of social bonds that they imagined that they, we, I should say, wanted reforged. But it's not just about marriage, right? I mean, it's also true among high school students or among teenagers. And then also the kind of decline in marriage rates can't explain the discrepancy between men who aren't having sex or young men who aren't having sex and young women who aren't having sex, right? That it's actually you have this kind of fall off among sex for a fairly large percentage of young men compared to young women. Yes, although – so we have to be careful, right? So the the reason we're having this conversation is that there was a big new general social survey analysis that came out that showed this spike particularly for young men over the last five or ten years in sexlessness. That is just one – data point and the general social survey is a really good study, but it's vulnerable to statistical errors like everything else. And if you package that together with the kind of data that informed the Atlantic essay that David just quoted and so on, we should be skeptical for now that there's a huge spike, right? That that there's a definite sort of huge young male incel, involuntary celibate phenomenon. What we can be certain about is there's less sex 
and fewer marriages, and the fewer marriages are driving a substantial portion, but we don't know how much. I find this depressing. I mean, I get that the decline in teen pregnancies is is a good thing, but this overall decline, it just feels like part of a larger breakdown in the health of our social interactions. People are spending less time interacting with each other. They're spending more time with machines. And with that Atlantic essay by Kate Julian, which appeared at the end of 2018, is really an excellent summary of this, I thought. And it it just describes a kind of awkwardness around what for a long time were basic human interactions that really depressed me. Yeah, I mean, I think that you kind of have to see it in concert with, you know, all these statistics about rising mental health problems, rising anxiety, rising rates of suicide among young people, right? I mean, probably not lots of casual sex is not super healthy, but potentially healthier than sitting in your room with pornography and video games all the time, if that's what's happening. And that might be, you know, a stereotype. And then the other piece of this is that Ross before said, you know, that we don't know that there's this expanding population of incels. But in as much there is a sort of mobilized population of incels, right? These like extremely resentful young men who feel like they've been denied their share of sexual happiness and companionship. And it's been politicized. I think it's no accident that you see this sort of cycle of radicalization that kind of starts with video games and then goes into white nationalism and that white nationalists have been kind of deliberate in recruiting on some of these forums. And these men, you know, they've both kind of committed overt acts of terrorism, but they're also you know, they are the alt-right, right? They are the kind of natural constituency of Trumpian politics. And I think you see in kind of every society, and it happens for lots of different reasons, that just having large cadres of unattached young men without much to do is like extraordinarily socially destructive. Yes, it's not good. I mean, this is where the argument for... A certain kind of cultural conservatism has always been that you want to structure society in such a way so that, you know, the male sex drive is linked to personal responsibility and, you know, sort of getting ahead in life and becoming a plausible mate and a good partner and a good provider and all of these things. And I think one of the conservative critiques of where our culture has ended up is basically that at a certain point we said, well, this, you know, this perspective is totally unfair to women because it sort of makes women more passive figures. It assumes that the male sex drive is stronger than the female sex drive and that's not necessarily true and all these things. And it puts too many limits on people's personal choices. And the difficulty is in sort of removing all rules and structure from how people think about what you're supposed to do in order (laughs) to have a normal, healthy sexual relationship, you've created a dynamic where men seem to think that they're entitled to the levels of sex that our culture says are necessary for the good life while having no clear, structured way to get there. And maybe that's just the price we pay. Right, but that in itself is sort of a function of social conservatism, right? I mean, the fact the sort of... You know, I don't want to use like a buzzword like toxic masculinity, but I don't think that, you know, progressives are out there saying, 
you kind of can ignore everything that makes a person a decent mate. They're saying that you actually have to treat women with more respect and more egalitarianism. And in fact, that is what you have to do to kind of successfully pair up in the society in which we were all actually living in. Right. I mean, Tucker Carlson recently went off on my friend Chris Hayes and said, if progressives had their way, every man would be a a spectacled, apologetic man like Chris Hayes. Right. And, you know, a lot of people responded like, you know, basically like, inshallah, you know, I think what progressives, progressives are saying that, you know, if you want to be healthily married, if you want to be, you know, have a family, the way to do it is to learn to treat women like equals. And that is kind of what, that's the lesson that the incels refuse to learn. And so to blame that on progressivism seems unfair to me. Yeah. I mean, I I think I would say that progressivism or whatever, whatever we want to call sort of current liberalized culture has not come up with a effective integration of masculinity and let's say gentlemanliness that works up and down the ladders of class and income and so on, right? I mean, toxic masculinity is a useful term because it describes something that's a constant in human history, right? Men are violent and dangerous in ways that are sort of specific to their bodies and their selves, and society has to find ways to discipline that. And it just seems like we haven't come up with a sort of consistent, effective means, even if there are sort of segments of society in which men are successfully pairing off. Ross, my question for cultural conservatives is, what are you going to do about it? Meaning, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to aspects of the cultural conservative critique, the idea that two parents, I would say they can be of opposite sex or same sex, the idea that two parents are better for kids than one, the idea that families bring huge benefits. I'm sympathetic to a lot of this. But when I hear cultural conservatives talk, I'm often left asking at the end, okay, but what do you want to do about it besides moral exhortations? Meaning, what kind of changes do you think as a society we could put in place that would actually make more likely the world you want to see? I think high schools and colleges could, you know, essentially move away, especially colleges, move away from the idea that sort of college life is supposed to just be a sexual free-for-all and move towards a world that the crudest way to put it, and this is, of course, considered the most reactionary notion imaginable, but is to bring back single-sex housing on college campuses and say, look, you know, the, the, sexes, the sexes should relate to each other in a slightly more civilized and decorous way than they do in campus life right now. And this would create structures of courtship rather than hookup culture because hookup culture seems to lead in the end to less sex and less, you know, less marriage, less of both. So that's sort of a reactionary structural suggestion. And I'm a little other, skeptical that would have a big effect. No, given well, nothing, nothing. Campuses as a sexual free for all isn't really nothing, the problem. Well, right but now. it's not the problem, except the cultural expectation on college campuses is that it's a sexual free for all. Right? That's the weird thing about this moment. It's sort of the most. It's sort of this incredibly permissive culture in a way that is then sort of producing this kind of sterile and uptight result in a weird way. Michelle, what's your solution? I think part of the the difficulty is just that kind of young men need to step up. And I don't think it's the job of young women 
to sort of make men better or tame and civilize men. So, I mean, personally, I think that young women shouldn't settle for extremely cold and brutal sexual culture that seems to prevail thanks to, you know, hookup culture and apps and all the rest. I think that women should demand more kindness and consideration and and kind of feel empowered to demand more from the men that they have sex with. Um, there's, I think, a lot of evidence that the sexual culture that we have right now is making young women pretty unhappy. And there are elements of the Me Too movement that's kind of a sublimated way to deal with that. And I think that if women feel empowered to expect more of men, maybe at least some men will rise to the occasion. To me, this is a sign that some fundamental things for our society aren't working for either women or for men, which I think is why I find it so depressing. And it's a sign of the scale of of the challenges that American society has right now. Um, And on that depressing note, we are going to leave this segment and come back in a minute with our weekly recommendation, which is designed to lift you up a little bit. It's time for our weekly recommendation when we try to take your mind off of politics. Ross, you get to go this week. What do you have? Well, so we're still a week out, but the last season of Game of Thrones is coming out on HBO next week. And of course, rather famously, the series is finishing even though the series of books that it's based on hasn't been finished. So I want to recommend a fantasy series for anyone who enjoyed Game of Thrones, either the shows or the books, called Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn by Tad Williams that came out, I think, in the 1990s. And it has many virtues, um, but among those virtues is the fact that it was actually finished. It was a long, sprawling, but ultimately sort of cohesive trilogy of fantasy novels that has a lot of the virtues of the genre, not quite as sort of bloody and sexually minded as George R. R. Martin, but also not just sort of a J.R.R. Tolkien retread. And again, it was finished. And so much of fantasy has ended up sort of not just Martin. There are other novelists who sort of failed to finish their huge sprawling sagas. So I think it's good to recommend a series that's both good and complete, as all great series should try to be. Is there going to be a movie? Well, maybe maybe after my recommendation. Um, <laughs> I, ha- I have, to people who've worked in the movie business, I've suggested this as a fantasy series that could be adapted because it is complete. Russ, is there a reason that fantasy novels don't get finished? Is there something that distinguishes them from other series? Two things, right? I mean, one, you sort of get lost in your world, right? Part of a big part of fantasy is world building. You're creating this universe. And this has clearly happened to Martin, that once he sort of got rich and famous, it was like, well, I want my characters to explore this, you know, this region of Westeros and that region and introduce this. And I can't get my character out of you know, out of this city that I've gotten them stuck in and so on. So then that is just linked to the problem of success, right? Often you'll start out writing a series and you'll write three books. And by the third book, you'll have gone from a struggling novelist to an insanely successful novelist. And it gets tougher and tougher to discipline yourself, I think, to finish. I mean, this even happened, you saw this with the Harry Potter novels, which were finished, 
But if you compare the first book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, to the last book, like the tightness of the original book is amazing. And by the end, it's clear that nobody can edit. You know, nobody's editing J.K. Rowling. Nobody's touching her prose. It just however much she wants to write, she's going to write. So really the best sagas are the ones that are finished before the writer becomes incredibly famous probably. There's a good example of that involving Stephen King. It, the original version of The Stand was was long, but then he republished it after he got really famous. And he he said in the preface, now I'm Stephen King, I can publish anything I want. And so I'm now publishing the whatever it was, 11 or 1200 word version. It, that's actually the only version of The Stand I've ever read. So I, I guess I, I guess I'm sort of partial to it. But but yeah, he was Stephen King, baby. Okay, uh, what's the recommendation again? It is Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. The first novel is called The Dragonbone Chair, and the author is Tad Williams. Thank you very much. Listeners, we're going to devote another segment soon to your voicemails and our responses to them, so we want you to call in and give us some thoughts and questions. What do you think is the most undercovered story in America right now? What are you arguing with your friends about? What is one piece of good news amidst all the depressing news in politics? Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. That's our show for this week. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin and Winton Wong for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Special thanks to Kaiser Health News. We recommend their podcast, What the Health. We are taking a one-week break next week. We will be back in your podcast feeds on Thursday, April 18th. See you then. For the record, I have enjoyed both the company of Chris Hayes and Tucker Carlson. And which one is more butch? I, I can't. these are questions that can't be answered on a podcast michelle ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world nybg's brand new online education program plant studio offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person guided by professionals dig into gardening botany floral design landscape design and more grow your skills with online learning your way Register at nybg.org.